Amen. Thank you, Kevin, and the praise team. I think we'll keep you around, Kevin. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's be turning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I made the comment as we were talking about the elevator. I made the comment that uh, our hope was that the elevator was fixed before Jesus comes back. And so my kids this weekend asked me after I told them the elevator was fixed, they said, well, is Jesus coming back? And I thought about that this morning, and I thought, you know, it'd be nice if he came back before this sermon. Uh, we've gotten, I'm just waiting, uh, we've, we've gotten to several points in Paul's letter to the Romans where we've said, you know, that this is, this is a difficult passage. Um, we've arrived at certain passages and we just have acknowledged, okay, this, this is a tough one. And I would dare say that Romans 9 is, is one of, if not the, the toughest. I've been in church all my life. And I don't recall ever hearing a sermon on Romans 9. Now, there may have been sermons on Romans 9. I just don't recall ever hearing one. Uh, so we kind of get to this place, all the sermons that we've just been through on Romans 8, you know, where we've been the past three weeks, uh, Romans 8, the chapter that everybody loves, the chapter that, that we encourage one another to memorize as much as we can. And uh, we now come to Romans 9, which is the, the chapter that most preachers avoid. So look, think about the, the difference between Romans 8 and, and Romans 9. One scholar says that Romans 9 is as full of problems as a hedgehog is full of prickles. So you have Romans 1 through 8 where Paul walks us through uh, the gospel. He walks us through in Romans 8 what this life in the Spirit looks like. And you get to Romans 12 uh, through 16, and you see the application played out. But then you have this section in Romans 9 through 11, which appears to be a puzzle. And we've said that there's four sections, and most scholarship agrees, there's really four primary sections in Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, chapters 1 through 4 is, is a section. Chapters 5 through 8 that we just have uh, gone through is a section. Chapters 9 through 11, and then chapters 12 through 16. Uh, so uh, I want us to think about a few things that may be helpful uh, as, as we move forward. There's, there's really, and when I, I say there's problems or there's issues or there's a toughness to Romans 9. Uh, what we're talking about is, is primarily a, a few things. Uh, one, we encounter this idea of predestination and election. This idea that, that can stand in contrast to free will. The conundrum of God's sovereignty and man's free will. Uh, I remember in high school, uh, this was a point of contention and uh, even on into uh, my early years in college. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a point of contention at my church or at my school. It was really in the community uh, because there was uh, a gentleman who was, who was teaching on predestination kind of in our community, and it, it just caused this, this, uh, this tension that, that was created among you know, particularly those of us uh, who were going to check it out, the high school and, and young college students. Uh, so that, that's one reason. Uh, the second reason is that there's this then and now language that doesn't come with a lot of explanation, particularly as it relates to God's promises to Israel. So God's reputation is, is on the line because Paul knows God's promises to Israel are under scrutiny as he is writing this letter. 
And I, I don't stand before you today uh, in any way uh, acknowledging that I've solved the puzzle. Rather, I stand before you as one who believes that every word in this book is not here accidentally. That God has placed his word in, in our midst for his goodness, for our teaching, and that there's nothing here that is an accident. Every word has meaning and purpose, and as God breathed, and I believe it will not return void. So, uh, a few things that I think would be helpful for us to keep in mind, and these are, are not new things. I've reminded of you of these before. Uh, you'll see a few of these on the screen. Uh, one is that Romans 9 is part of a greater section. We just said that. So, if you look, in, if you look at the entire section, chapters 9 through 11, and I would encourage you this week to, to be in those chapters. Be in chapters 9 through 11. Try to read it as a whole. See, see the context of, of that section. Uh, the second reminder is that Romans 9 through 11 is a part of the whole letter. So remember, Paul is writing a whole letter. He's not just writing little, uh, little TikTok snip, snippets, all right? He's, he's writing a, a bigger picture, and we need to be mindful of that. And I didn't put this one on the screen. But we also need to be my, mindful of the meta-narrative of Scripture, the, the bigger picture of what's going on. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration, new creation. We, we have to keep these things in mind as well as we explore the Word. And then third, I would just say that Romans 9 through 11 is worth the pursuit. So take heart. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that Your Son and our Savior declared that the spirit of truth will guide us into all truth. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Show us the truths that you desire to teach us. And in so doing, may we be willing to live these truths in our daily lives. It's in Jesus' good name that we pray. Amen. Romans 9, starting in verse 1. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. Hmm. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul confesses his personal anguish. This is not just Paul philosophizing. There, there's a personal element to this. There's a personal anguish that is, is happening here as he writes, an unceasing anguish, the Scripture says. He goes from this, this climax in chapter 8 where we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus to these words of lament in chapter 9. And I've had to stop and think, you know, does, is my heart anguished for those who do not know Jesus? Paul has been addressing this relationship between Jews and Gentiles in Christ throughout the letter, and now he turns his attention to this biblical evidence concerning God's purposes in history. And Paul, he turns to the Old Testament. 
A matter of fact, 25% of Paul's quotes from the, from the Old Testament in the New Testament, in all of his letters, 25% of those quotes are found here in chapters 9 through 11. So it's, it's heavy with, with Paul's quoting. Uh, Paul's going to go back and he's going to tell the story. Uh, Paul has, has misread it, and now he's trying to help others who have misread it as well. Paul's saying, how can all of you people miss who Jesus is? And Paul is in anguish, so much so that he says, I wish I was cut off from Christ for their sake. Who can say that? I mean, it, it echoes these words of Moses in Exodus 32, where Moses says, forgive them, God, and, and if not, blot my name out of your book. Moses is pleading with God on, on behalf of the Israelites. He says, if, if not, just take my name out of your book. Or maybe you connect with Jesus' words, where Jesus says, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. These are difficult words. And one of the questions that Paul addresses head on is, is did God's promises to Israel fail? And Paul shows from Scripture that God did not use an ethnic criteria that guaranteed salvation for Jews and excluded the Gentiles. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So what does Paul say? That not all of Abraham's children received the promise. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. He really only had two, Ishmael and Isaac. Not all of Abraham's children received the promise, nor did all of Isaac's. In verses 10 through 13, not only that, verse 10, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it's written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. So Paul assumes that the reader knows this story. Paul's assuming that the reader knows the Genesis account. Abraham had two sons, Isaac by his wife Sarah. Ishmael by his wife's handmaiden, Hagar. He assumes that, you know, that there's Isaac who had twin sons, Esau and Jacob, by his wife, Rebekah. Yeah, this is a, a verse that I, I confess I've struggled with. As, as Paul is quoting from uh, the, the Italian prophet Malachi, Malachi, he's quoting from Malachi, and he says this, he says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. I've struggled with that. Like, what, is, what does that mean? Love one, hate the other? What's he saying? God's plan is, is choosing some and was, was done without regard for the moral character of those involved. People thought Abraham was chosen because of his outstanding moral ability, and so God's chosen people, they thought, was dependent on them being morally superior to the rest of the human race. And Paul spends a good part of the letter earlier on disproving that. All have sinned. All have fallen short. This is the great leveling of humanity, the human predicament. One scholar says it this way, the thrust is not you are special so you can sit back and take it easy. It was always 
you are special. So why are you taking God for granted? Why are you failing to honor him and ignoring your call to carry forward his purposes? God's choice never results in easy, arrogant, automatic superiority. Much is expected to those to whom much is given. Verse 14, what what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The blessing of God's people, it was given, not earned. Verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Uh, This is a picture of the house that I grew up in, in Antioch, Tennessee, on Fanning Drive. And what you can't really see in the picture is on the right side of the driveway, uh, we had this basketball goal that my my dad had put in, and uh, we played, you know, a lot of basketball. Um, But one night, there was a pretty significant storm, some, some like of the storms that we've had come through recently. Some of you have been recipients of, of damage to those storms. Uh, we had a storm come through one night and it blew the basketball goal down onto our neighbor's car. And so we woke up the next morning and the basketball goal is laying literally on our neighbor's car. Uh, fortunately, the, you know, we had a good relationship. They weren't too mad about it. You know, we were able to get all that worked out. It was the 80s, you just kind of rolled with it. And so uh, my dad got the basketball goal and, and took it over to my, my grandfather's house. And my grandfather put that goal in the ground and he put it in so deep that that 10-foot goal became a 9-foot goal. I mean, he, he was bound and determined that that thing was going to be rooted. It was going to be solid. Uh, and, and to this day, my grandparents no longer live there, God rest their soul, they, but I think the, the goal is still standing. And what, what's the point? It's, it's, it's that Romans 9, 16 is one of those truths that must be deeply rooted in the life of the Christian. Paul goes on to give this hint of what he's talking about. Verse 17, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. If you know your Old Testament, you know that that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But here's the question, is, is God to blame for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? It's a much debated topic. One of the things that we realize in Scripture is that that Pharaoh hardened his own heart five times before God hardened his heart. It wasn't until the sixth plague that, that Scripture says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was given over to what he had already chosen. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Author C.S. Lewis once said that hell is always a door that is first locked from the inside. Jesus' parable of the, the wedding banquet in Matthew 22, just a chapter previously, is an illustration of this. 
And so, so what's, the, what's the point? It's salvation totally belongs to our God. Verse 19, one of you will say to me, then, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the right to, to make out the same lump of clay, some pottery for some special purpose and some for common use? We hear this, this passage that quoting directly from Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 45 with, with echoes of Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6, all laced in here. And as, as Paul is saying that God's purposes must go forward even if Israel fails to respond to his gentle molding, whether Israel is obedient or not. Verse 22, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath? prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? This is a, about the time as, as we continue through the text, this is about the time that the Bible student will, will pause and just ask the question, well, if God can, can save everybody, why, why doesn't he save everybody? And here Paul, Paul seems to suggest that God's chosen course to save some and not others will be more fit to show God's glory than any other scheme we could imagine. Hmm. In verse 25 and 26, Paul quotes the Old Testament prophet Hosea saying that because you reject me, the door will be open to others. But because Israel rejected Jesus, the door was, was open to the Gentiles. I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. So why did Israel reject Jesus? And, and was that a failure on God's part? Paul emphatically says, no, no. Paul goes on to quote the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah de declares in verse 27 through 29 that a remnant will be saved, but ultimately Israel rejected Jesus, not because God appointed it, but because they refused to humble themselves and accept the gospel. Verse 30, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over the gospel. Jesus did not come to this earth with trophies to tell Israel or to tell us how, how good we are. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to usher in an upside down kingdom. And when the human race disobeyed God, attempting to kick him off his throne, he responded by laying down his life. You and I, if we get cut off in traffic on Highway 280, we secretly fantasize about ramming that car with our car.
God laid down his life. Church, we rack our intellectual minds trying to figure out the conundrum of God's sovereignty and man's free will. And I'm, I'm so thankful for Bible teachers uh, like, uh, like Dr. Brian Pruitt who help us think through some of these complexities or Nathan Heisler who help us think through some of these complexities. And I, I spent a large part of my week, I was waking up in the middle of the night thinking about this text. I, was, I went to the Sanford Library in the religious section multiple days this week, pulling every book I could off the shelf. And I'm, I'm in the text, and I'm, I'm saying, God, just show me, just show me, just show me, just show me. What, what, what's the word? You know, and, and, and he gave me a song. He gave me a song. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. He took my sin and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died alone. Come on, church. How marvelous, oh, how wonderful, and shall ever be. Come on. How marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Peter says in 1 Peter 1 that even the angels long to look in on that. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that had been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Preacher, how does that all work? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't mean that we can't know anything. Don't check your intellectual mind at the door. But, oh, church of Jesus Christ, I want you to see where Paul is headed. I want you to, to fast forward all the way to the end of this section in Romans chapter 11. In verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. 
Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There's takeaway number one is that this God is worthy of our devotion and our worship. You just go outside and see who this God is. Like the, the sun has to be the center of the universe. The earth cannot be the center of the universe. If it did, it would ruin everything. God is the center of the universe, not us. Like the, the sun, the surface of the sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. I can't even get my mind around 27 million degrees. The best I can do is 98.6. And my kids even laugh at me because sometimes I'm in the 97s when they take my temperature. My cold-blooded father. <laughs> this is the God who, who created and sustains. Let us not give up meeting together and worshiping this God. Takeaway number two, God is not unfaithful and unjust, but merciful. Jesus said to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It does not therefore depend on human desire and effort, but on God's mercy, verse 16. Takeaway number three. The merciful God is the missional God. Paul's theology of mercy is ultimately tied to his theology of mission. The merciful God is the missional God. You flip the page to Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4, here it is. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Everyone. You don't have to leave here today wondering if you are chosen. The Word of God says that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. A few verses later in Romans 10, Paul's going to declare that, that he who confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead will be saved. That's good news. Let's pray this morning. And so, Father, we, hmm. we're humbled by your word.
it's a humbling thing to stand before your people and proclaim your word. I'm grateful for that privilege. I love these people. I'm thankful that you have given me that love in my heart. That you have called us all to love one another. And in so doing that this world will know that we are followers of Jesus. By the way that we love one another. I'm thankful for the many gifts and talents that you have placed in this faith family. I'm thankful that we can come together in such a way that we have something that the other person needs and they have something we need. So Father, as, as Alan said in communion, may we ask that question, what, what is it that you're calling us to? What, what are we doing to advance the kingdom of God? We pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. I pray that you will encourage our, our hearts and minds today to continue to pursue your goodness, to continue to seek it out in our daily lives, whether we go to school this week, go to work this week, wherever we find ourselves, in our homes. Father, may you be the light that shines bright in all of our lives. We thank you for this in Jesus' good name. Amen.